Okay, it's um, six o'clock, so I think we'll make a start. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, this is a talk on behalf of um, the Centre for Fine Print Research at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Um, two of us are speaking today, um, and then some of our other colleagues are speaking um, in the coming weeks. Um, my name's Peter Walters. Um, this is Paul O'Dowd, who will be talking a little bit later on. But I'm going to kick off by giving some, some background to the, to the research centre and a bit about my personal background um, and how, how I got to where I am today as a research fellow within the centre. And then I'll talk about some examples of projects that we've done, practical projects. And then I'll hand over to Paul, and he'll speak in more detail about his involvement with research within the centre. Okay. So, Paul and I are both based in a research group called the Centre for Fine Print Research, which is based at Bower Ashton. Um, we're a pretty um, interdisciplinary bunch, a um, whole range of different backgrounds. Um, we've got fine artists. Um, people from design backgrounds. Um, we've got a materials technologist, a mathematician, a robotics specialist, Paul from a robotics background, um, museum and gallery specialists, particularly in the area of conservation. And we also collaborate across disciplines, both within the group itself and also working with people outside. So we do a lot of work with fine artists, we do a lot of work with industry, and we do um, artists that we've worked with recently include Richard Hamilton, um, an American artist, Leslie Dill, ceramicist Peter Ting, um, but equally we do work with companies as well, so um, I'll talk a bit more about that later. But um, it's really this connection between art, technology and industry, that's what we try and showcase within the group making those tangible links between the visual arts, design, technology, and then also the commercial world of industry. And it's also about the connection between craft and the digital. So we're thinking about making. Um, we've got a background, um, all of us, I think, as being makers in a quite traditional sense, but also we're embracing new technology and putting that to good use, um, but still approaching it in the way hopefully approaching it in the way that a craftsperson might approach it in terms of thinking about the different qualities and capabilities of materials and process. So my personal background is um, I trained as an industrial designer um, at Sheffield Hallam. I did a, a BA and an MA degree in industrial design. And then I worked in the design industry. I worked in product design and furniture design. Um, I worked as a, a CAD specialist, so doing computer-aided design, and I also worked for a, a while as a design researcher within, an, ac within um, an academic research context. Um, I did a PhD in design practice, so it was a practice-led PhD. It was looking at prototyping, and it was looking at how, how designers make prototypes and how that's changing with the introduction of digital prototyping, both virtual modeling, but also 3D printing um, CAD CAM processors. That was kind of at the cusp of when, when 3D printing was really starting to be used within industry. Um, 
So now we're, we're quite familiar with 3D printing, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. But at the time, it was still quite new, and it was very common for designers to work in traditional media, so traditional drawing by hand, making models by hand. The digital processes were coming in, and my PhD was looking at that tension between traditional practice and new technology. Um, after completing my PhD, I moved down to Bristol 10 years ago, almost exactly, it was February 2007, um, to take up an academic position within the centre. So I, I was lucky, lucky enough to be um, appointed to a RCUK academic research fellowship, which was a five-year post, um, initially focusing on research, but then gradually moving more towards teaching. Um, and now I'm still a research fellow, but I also teach, I'm a tutor on MA design, and I also supervise PhD students in art and design. So if anyone's interested in doing a PhD, don't come and talk to me afterwards. <laughs> I'll scare you off. <laughs> okay, so this is a research presentation, so I thought I ought to start off by mentioning the M word, which is methodology that people get kind of hung up on sometimes, and kind of talk about the sort of methodologies that we adopt within the center. I think we adopt a very sort of a light touch approach to our research in that it's very much, it's pragmatism, it's very much about doing for the sake of knowing and it's about that relationship between knowledge and action. So here's John Dewey who was a real pioneer of this approach to, to, to knowledge and how we, how we understand the world through doing. Um, he was so famous that he even ended up on a postage, chump, postage stamp there. Um, Another kind of key person in my sort of research background was reading the work of Bruce Archer, who was head of research at the, at the Royal College of Arts, and he wrote a lot. He was one of the kind of pioneering people behind practice-led research and, you know, aligning that with, with the approach to research, action research, which kind of opened the door, really, to practice research in art and design. So I think we all owe a debt, debt of gratitude to, to Bruce Archer for... for enabling that to happen. Um, but my favorite um, research, um, my, my favorite research inspiration is this guy, actually. I don't know whether you remember him. I don't know whether you've seen him before. We took four cardboard tubes, the kind of tube you'd find in a regular brand of household toilet tissue, and then proceeded to place them on the floor making four columns equidistantly thus. We wanted to test if these cardboard tubes would support the average body weight of a human man. No. That's a typical day in the 3D lab at the Center for Fine Print Research. Okay, so 3D printing, what is it? If I'd have asked that question 10 years ago when I started here at UWE, there would have been probably quite a few confused faces. But I think nowadays people are quite familiar with the concept of 3D printing. So has anybody here in the, in the, um, in the hall, has anyone done any 3D printing? How many people? So quite a lot of you have done actually working with 3D printing. So I think that's really encouraging that it, it shows how it's kind of filtering through from being something that was not really understood to being something that's being more widely talked about within society, but also more widely used in education. 
So 3D printing, as you know, is a, is a way of making a 3D physical three-dimensional model from a CAD file, from a digital model. And how that works generally is that you, have a, you start with a digital model which might have been constructed in a 3D CAD program or it might have been scanned from an object in the real world like a, like a, a medical scan. So we can work from, from medical scan data or we can work from digital scans of objects. You know, we've done some work with scanning museum objects and printing out replicas. So once we've got that digital file, the model is sliced by some software that controls the printer. So it slices it up into a series of horizontal layers. And then the 3D printer will build that object by printing one layer on top of another. So this is one of our 3D printers um, that we have within the 3D print lab at the Center for Fine Print Research. And it's called a powder binder printer because it works by spreading a thin layer of powder onto a bed. And then there's an inkjet print head like you have on your inkjet printer at home, which prints a liquid binder, which um, functions a little bit like glue to glue the powder together. Um, the standard um, process uses a plaster-based powder, so it's a bit like the sort of plaster that you might use in the, work, in the workshops, but it's, it's very fine and it spreads with a roller. And what happens is the roller spreads a thin layer of powder, it prints uh, with the inkjet head a layer of binder, and then the bed drops down and the process con continues, um, so spreading and then binding until the object's complete. And then when the object is complete, it's fully surrounded by the loose powder, so you brush that away, a bit like archaeology, with a paintbrush brushing the loose powder away to release the objects. So here's a, a little video of that working, so you can see. finished you get something like that obviously they're very simple objects those cubes as you can see we've got different colored binders so we can create different colored objects using those um, a whole wide range of colors this was some work that we did with Karina Paraman who's in the audience who's one of our color specialists and we were we were trying to calibrate and understand the the range of colors that we could get from the 3d printer by mixing the different inks but also with 3D printing, the great thing is that you get complexity that comes free because the 3D printer doesn't mind how complex the shape is. It's not like with conventional fabrication processes where you've got to think about something coming out of a mold or something being machined with a conventional machine tool. Actually, with 3D printing, you get that, you get that level of complexity for free, um, and it means that you can be quite expressive in the range, in the range of objects that you produce. This is some work that was um, carried out by colleagues in the center. Um, David Hewson, who's in the audience too, and Stephen Hoskins, who couldn't be here today. Um, but they've looked at replacing the plaster powder in the powder binder printer with a ceramic powder that they've developed. So Dave's been working for a long time on this, and he's developed a specially blended uh, ceramic powder that's compatible with the 3D printing process, and also the binders. Um, and what that means is that Dave can print a ceramic object, he can print a pot 
in the printer and then take it out the printer, dry it overnight, and then it can go in the kiln and it can be fired like a conventional ceramic. And then once you've fired it, you can then apply um, different ceramic slips onto the surface and also glazes. So it means that you can create some quite exquisite, um, delicate ceramic objects, again, which would be very difficult to make by conventional means. So this is a, this is a ceramic uh, designer we worked with called Peter Ting, and he created this double-walled uh, vessel, this double-walled double teacup. Um, using, using the, um, the, the capabilities or showing off the capabilities of the UE process, which has now been patented, and it's actually been licensed to a, a 3D printing company in America. Um, so I guess that shows the kind of the, the level of complexity that we can go to with 3D printed ceramics, thanks to Dave and Steve. Um, I've been sort of in the background on that project, helping out doing CAD and things like that. So, um, but I came up with this design for these ghosts and I kind of quite like the idea of the ghost in the machine and the idea that, that actually with these, this infestation of, of, of ghosts in the 3D printer, actually it brought to mind the idea that actually there is a, in a sense with all these processes, there is a kind of ghost in the machine in that the, the, the practical knowledge of, of materials and processes are still required. So it's not just a question of just pressing print. You still need that, that knowledge of, of in, in this case, Dave, Dave's knowledge of, of ceramics to be able to understand the process and to be able to design for it, and particular, in particular thinking about things like you know, how, something's gonna, how th something is going to behave in the kiln, how to apply a glaze to it. So in a sense, I think this, this kind of sums up a lot of the philosophy behind the work that goes on in the center. In the, it's about that connecting those craft skills with the digital, Um, what, what also happens quite often with, with our work is that we, we kind of beaver away on these projects working within very much art and design uh, contexts, but then somebody comes along and takes an interest in that technology and, and what's happened with the ceramics is that what we're finding is that actually there's, there's, a, there's a big interest in technical ceramics, in being able to create porous structures and because the, 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 the powder binder process is in, produces an inherently porous structure, um, there's a lot of interest in this process in, in, areas, think, in areas things like in the, water, in the water industry for water treatment or for fuel cell technologies or in architecture for actually creating structures where you can control the porosity so you can go from being some, something that's being very, very porous to being quite porous to being not porous at all just by the way you treat the surface. So I think this is going to open up some quite exciting new avenues for us in terms of our work, sort of taking that knowledge from one project and putting it into quite a different context. But that's, that's something that I think that we do quite well within the centre, is that we, because we work in that interdisciplinary sort of way, we're able to make those connections. This is some of my work that I've done, um, I guess over the last 10 years really, I've been exploring um, 3D printing in combination with smart materials. Um, so by smart materials, in my case, those are materials that behave a little bit like muscles. So you apply an electric um, voltage or current to the, to the muscle and it contracts. And I've been working with these kinds of materials for quite a while now, but I was lucky enough to get a, an early career grant from UWE to do a project with this guy, Dave McGoran, who's also based in Bristol. And he's a, his background is that he was a puppeteer. Um, but he also studied robotics, so he is very interested in the expressive qualities 
of, of robots. And we worked on this project together looking at how we could use these artificial muscle materials in combination with 3D printing to create some quite lifelike expressive movement in objects. So by artificial muscle, this is a, this is a simple demonstration. So it's a, it's a metal uh, muscle. Um, in this case, it's formed into a, like a kind of spring shape, like a coil, a helix. And when you apply a current through it, it heats up the metal and it contracts quite quickly and with quite some substantial, some substantial force. So if I, watch, if I put this video on now, you'll be able to watch it. There's some weights at the bottom. That's about 300 grams. And this, um, this setup is, is able to lift those weights using the, the electrical energy to heat, heat the metal and contract like a muscle. And what would happen then is that is that that would cool and the, and the weights would drop back down again. So we use that type of actuator. We actually use some much smaller ones than, than, the, um, than the muscle that you've just seen. They were, they were, they're called biometal and they come from Japan. And the, the diameter of the spring is less than a millimeter. They're very small and very supple. And we used two of those acting against each other and created a, a kind of tentacle-like mechanism using that mechanism in combination with a 3D printed structure. So we've got this printer at work called an object printer, which is made in Israel, and it's able to print in soft materials, rubber-like materials, which have a really soft, supple, lifelike sort of feel to them. They're quite strange. Um, so we were able to print these um, structures with the cavities built in to take the muscles. And then this is a, a video of one of these actuators actually working. Oops, sorry, went the wrong way. Um, sorry, just getting confused with my, yeah. So it creates a very smooth, lifelike movement, and it's completely silent. So often with this kind of thing in animatronics, you would have the noise of a servo motor, which could be quite off-putting. But this is actually a completely smooth, rapid movement. When you actually see it in the flesh, it's quite uncanny. People, people tend to not. My, my colleague Dave says it looks like a tapeworm. He's quite rude, but um, it's, uh, <laughs> it usually creates, it makes people feel a bit creepy. And then we also, with Dave's background in puppeteering, we were also looking at a way of we might be able to puppeteer this tentacle. So we got these flex sensors, which, which the resistance of the sensor changes as it, as it bends. And so we were able to hook those up directly to the muscle, to the artificial muscles, and then as you bend the, as you bend the flex sensor, the, the tentacle will follow in the same direction. So it's a bit like puppeteering a, a kind of smart puppet. There's a little bit of a time lag because, the, because of the heating up and cooling of the, the muscles, but it's quite... It's quite analogous in terms of the way it, it moves. And then this is a, this is a rather than having two muscles, this one's got three. And that means that you get full 360-degree uh, movement. Um, Yeah. 
And this work, again, a bit like the ceramics, it's kind of, it started off as an art and design project, but it's kind of attracted quite a lot of attention in the um, engineering and robotics field. So there's a new field within robotics called soft robotics, um, which is kind of looking at this kind of um, application for things like surgical instruments that need to be, so you can imagine a soft endoscope that could be controlled in that way, or um, for prosthetics, things like artificial limbs. Um, so there's quite a, quite a big interest in this, and I was, I was asked um, earlier this month to go and give a talk in the Netherlands at a conference that was all about 4D, what's called 4D printing, so it's like taking 3D printing and then adding time and movement to that. So this was a, this was a piece of work that I presented at that conference, and there was quite a lot of people there from the robotics field, but also from the um, medical and technical um, a medical technology sort of field, and, and, and they've shown quite a lot of interest in this, in this sort of technology moving forward. This was a kind of sort of Frankenstein uh, project that we did, uh, following on from doing the tentacles. Um, I don't know if you if you're familiar with the the work that's going on in in the Bristol Robotics Lab, uh, looking at microbial fuel cells. So they've got these fuel cells that can generate electrical energy from waste organic matter, which could be rotting fruit, or it could be human excrement, or other biomass, basically, you can feed it on, 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 on anything that kind of can be broken down by microorganisms. And they have these little fuel cells that generate a very small electric current um, from the metabolic action of the microbes that live inside the fuel cells. And Yanis Aropoulos, who's a colleague and friend of mine, who's been working on this field for like the last 15 years, he's, he's taken the technology to a point where it's actually now becoming really useful. So in the past, it only generated very small amounts of um, energy, but now it's much more, um, much more efficient. And one of the things that the microbial fuel cell needs is it needs to be fed and watered. And so there's a requirement for a pump. So we kind of had this idea about could we make a could we make a heartbeat? Could we, could we make a, a, an artificial heartbeat for this stack of fuel cells um, on board this micro, microbial fuel cell system? And the way we did it was we, we, we took yeast, because you can feed the fuel cells yeast and sugar. So we took yeast and sugar and generated gas. And then using the electricity generated by the fuel cells, we tapped off a small amount of that and use that to control an artificial muscle, like a heart valve. And from that, we were able to create this kind of pulsating action. You can see how that could function as a diaphragm pump within a, a living system, but it's actually using that bioenergy. And again, this attracted quite a bit of interest, so that was picked up by the website of New Scientists, and they showed, showed the video on there on their website, they were quite interested in it, this idea of a, a kind of cyborg heartbeat that's using live biological material. So it's using yeast and microbes in the microbial fuel cells to generate that action in combination with something artificial, like an artificial muscle. And then this is the last example I'm gonna show, is uh, another type of smart material that I've worked with. So this work, again, was done in, co in combination with Dave McGorham, but also Jonathan Rossiter, who runs the Soft Robotics Lab in Bristol, and he provided me with some of this um, special material, which is uh, it's actually a gold-plated polymer, 
Um, it's called an ionic polymer in that um, it has electrical um, ions that move around inside depending on how the um, a voltage is applied to the surfaces and it causes a bending actuation. So I was able to, on the laser cutter here, I was able to cut out these little wing shapes. Um, they're very small, there's only five centimeter wingspan and then I was able to wire them up and create this kind of, that's uh, one mouse again, there we are, this sort of flapping action. So it's very subtle, it's not like the sort of movement you get with, a, with an electric motor. So Steve Hoskins and myself, are, at the moment we're working on a bid, um, looking at um, what we're calling the aesthetics of flight. And we're wanting to kind of create some structures a little bit like that that would actually fly, and look at the idea of performative artworks that, that maybe um, glide or flap, or we've also quite keen on the idea of a kinetic kite, so making a kite that you can fly that has some of these smart materials built into it, so perhaps you can, you can change, change the shape of the kite whilst it's, whilst it's flying to make it, it perform differently or to make it look differently and create interesting movement. But sort of following on from these kind of semi-robotic sort of designs, I'd like to hand over to Paul who's going to talk a bit more about his own background in robotics and how he's been able to apply that really creatively within the, within the research centre. Can't see anything. Okay, thanks, Peter. Um, so my name is Paul O'Dowd. I'm a research fellow, just like Peter. And as Peter mentions, my background is in robotics. Um, so I was invited to come and talk about the intersection of art and technology, and I've been thinking quite a lot about what I would actually like to talk about. Um, I think it's a very broad definition, art and technology. And so I thought it would be much more interesting to try and unpick that and work out what do we mean when we say art and technology. Uh, so I was quite lucky in 2010 to have a mentor uh, when I was beginning my PhD who was just horrible to me all the time. And um, he would just persistently ask me, so what, so what, so what? So he would give me loads of reading to do and I'd go off and do it and I'd come back all excited and say, oh, it's this and this and it works like this. And he would go, well, so what, so what? And so that's really what I want to do here, like art and technology, so what? But I think first we need to try and work out what art and technology means. So... As Peter said, my background is in robotics, and um, actually my career is driven by robotics. It's definitely the fundamental of it, but it's been really diverse, and I keep sort of moving around and meandering. I've got quite a, a variety of things in my background. And in a way, I think actually the place where I am now, which is probably at this sort of mythical intersection of art and technology, um, is, maybe, is maybe best discussed, maybe a bit relative to me, because somehow I've ended up in this place, and you know, how did that happen? Um, yeah, so, where did it all begin? My childhood, right? So, I think we could define my childhood with three major passions, and the first one would be gymnastics. So, I, I did gymnastics for maybe the first half of my life, and I think that's important because um, it meant I had to develop a huge amount of trust in my body and my body's connection to my environment. 
So it was very much about swinging around, jumping around, doing all that sort of stuff. But I think what was also interesting was this idea that there wasn't enough time to think. So often, uh, say if I was doing a somersault or a backflip, it would happen so fast and my body would do it. And I knew that my body would just remember these things. And there was this idea that somehow intelligence could be, could be in the body. Um, often when in gymnastics, when I was training, I'd get really bloody hands, and that's like one of my most sort of visceral memories, is just having sore hands. But as a child, this for me was just completely normal. I thought it was just part of, part of the game. It was part of being a gymnast. Um, and these days, if I, you know, there's no chance, absolutely no chance you'll catch me on a high bar with bloody hands. It's, that's crazy. Um, okay, so the second thing then would be drawing. Um, I just had a real passion for drawing. I loved it, and it was particularly with pen and pencil. That was my sort of medium of choice. And, and what I liked to do was just create caricatures of animals and people. And they always had like big googly eyes, a bit like uh, Aardman or Wallace and Gromit. Um, what I think is interesting about drawing is that it's an act of observation, mostly, in my opinion. Um, from, from drawing, I wanted to be an animator. And that was, that was then my drive. That, I carried that through up until I was about 15. I was determined I was going to be an animator. Um, I was sort of dissuaded by my dad, so I would sort of pretend I was going into graphic, into graphic design or something like that. Um, just recently, I was watching my nephew, and I noticed that uh, we were sitting down to paint, and the first thing he did was just roll out an entire page of red paint. And I was sort of thinking, what, what on earth is he doing? Like, how is he going to, where is he going to take this? What is he going to paint? And then he just put that to one side and then started drawing his favourite cartoon characters. And I think there's something really interesting about that sort of innocent, childish childlike, I should say, um, just pursuit of satisfaction, perhaps, or aesthetics or joy, and I think that's really interesting. So then the third sort of major passion I had, I've, I've, this one's a really strange one, but uh, I spent so much time burning ants with a magnifying glass. Like, whenever the sun was out, I would take this magnifying glass that my dad gave me, and I would be out there sort of studying these ants. Um, and it wasn't a, a gleeful exercise. I wasn't sort of like some kind of mad crazy person like laughing hysterically. I, I would sit there for, for hours, like literally hours, and I would sometimes sort of be digging up holes to try and find out where the queen was, or I would sort of be working out, trying to work out how it was that ants made decisions. So then I went to school, just like everyone, and I think really that was a bit like sort of being funneled through a system. Um, and obviously I was taught to sort of adopt pose like that. Um, and I still do that today. That's mostly what I do today, is sort of sit in chairs in an office. Um, but I became a scientist. And I think being a scientist is, a, is sort of a, a quite a particular way of looking at the world. It's very analytical, and there's the scientific method, and that's supposed to be very objective. Whether or not it is objective, or if it sort of, if it carries across as an objective pursuit when it's applied is sort of up for debate. Uh, but what I find is that I still actually really reflect on these sort of free, free childhood passions that I had. Um, quite, sometimes I'll like burn my hand on a grill and that smell, I just think, oh, burning ants. And um, it's really strange. And I think, well, what was wrong with me as a child? Like, what, what was that all about? Um, so, you know, I, I still reflect on all these things. And I think the most obvious one of those passions is, is actually animation. And that's really carried through in, in the way I've sort of managed to have a career. And for me, robotics is, is actually very much about animation. I, I didn't realize this immediately. It's one of those things that I've looked at in hindsight, and I realized that a lot of the, the satisfaction I got from doing robotics was seeing the things move after I programmed. I think it's a bit like my nephew and the way he rolled out the red paint. Um, yeah, and I also think it's important for me that 
it was the it was the sort of the observation I was making of the world which really informed the the route I took through through robotics. So then the next one, if we talk about gymnastics, then I think really that was all about that sort of being embodied, like being a physical thing. So I could have done, say, computer science, or I could have done animation, but actually robotics became that, that, that manifestation of, of actually being in the world and understanding things through the world. So obviously there's, there's the burning ants thing. Um, <laughs> I think the really funny thing is I spent all that time burning ants and watching them, and then uh, when I was 24 or 25, I started a PhD, and my subject was swarm robotics. So I spent the next four years reading about ants and termites. <laughs> it's really strange, and I didn't make the connection until you know after the PhD. I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute, what the hell is going on?" Um, yeah. So I think when I was looking at those ants and the sort of questions I was asking, because my training was as a scientist, the questions were pretty much what, where, when, and how, and all of those really have quite clear objective answers. Um, but more recently, I've actually started to move into the arts. And I've sort of really like, realized this connection between what my original sort of free childhood passions were and what the humanity of those things were. And I've been investigating those with robotics as a medium. Um, so when, when I sort of now live in this sort of intersection of art and technology, the thing which has started to sort of be really striking and the thing which causes me a lot of trouble is actually the question, why? And it's, it's a bit like, so what? But I think it's actually different. And if I think about those set of words, what, where, when, and how, why is the one which I think is most ambiguous and most confusing? So we might ask, um, why is the ant going in that direction? And it's like maybe it got pissed off the queen and it just thought, hey, I'm going to sneak off. Or we might ask, why is a bird singing in the tree? And we might say, oh, the bird's really happy and it doesn't like being in large open spaces. But those questions can be arranged to be like, what does a bird gain by being in a tree? And so as a scientist, the question of why for me has always just been a bit of an alien one. It's sort of one that I've just put on the shelf and not worried about too much. Um, yeah. I think it's particularly, like, why, why is a particularly perverse question if you apply it to things like natural physical laws, such as why do apples fall down? Like, why does gravity have that effect? Like, there's no why to gravity. There's, there must just be a what or a how. So... I think a part of my training really has been about asking good questions. So I told you all of that, and that was probably like the longest introduction ever, um, because what I kind of wanted to illustrate was that actually the knowledge we gain depends on the lens we look through, and also that the questions we ask depend on the journey we've been on, and I think those things are really important. And I think it's really important to this idea of art and technology as well. Okay, so we're back to art and technology. So I think like art and technology, it looks like it's the combination of two things, it's a union, but I think actually the reality is it's, it's actually a complete division. Like, why would we have a term like art and technology if they were, if they were somehow related or intertwined? Like, just by saying art and technology, we're separating them out and making a distinction of some kind. Um, I find this really confusing. Um, I think it's a result of specialization. We can think about uh, sort of the Renaissance person or uh, the polymath, and, and these are people who sort of are good at everything and do everything, but maybe in our modern society with specialization, it's just not possible for someone to be like that. Um, the problem I have is that I think that art is actually technology. So these are some paint tubes. Um, before paint came in tubes, you had to sort of grind it up for yourself, and you had to put it in a bladder, 
Um, and it meant that not many people would go out and actually paint outdoors because it was a real pain in the butt. <laughs> so the Industrial Revolution came along and we had this sort of mass, um, you know, mass commodify, commodify, or whatever, the mass commoditization there is, of, um, of paint. And suddenly lots of people could paint, people could use lots of paints. So we had things like Impressionism and people could go and paint outdoors. So I think it's a bit strange to sort of have a definition of art and technology and make that distinction when really art has a basis in technology. I think that's also true at one point. I had, I had it sort of fixed in my head that what was going on was that artists reject technology, that's what they do. They sort of like some technology, but otherwise they just reject it and they have this sort of irrational rejection of technology. But I've been doing my reading and that's not true either because there are artists out there who are altering their own DNA, they're growing ears on their arms, they're sort of having weird surrogate children in all kinds of ways and blood transfusions. I think there was an artist who was actually sort of drawing with his own blood and you know all this stuff is like all about modern technology and they're all doing something with it, they're all expressing and, and saying something. So again we're at this place where like the intersection of art and technology, like what, what does that actually mean? Like what, what, what distinction are we making here? So for me what it's about is it, it's something about humanity, right? Um, I think that it is something about it is something about ownership. It's about um, you know what what's going on. Why? Sorry, I'm just a bit lost. Yeah, I think it's, it's about humanity. It's about expressing. So it's not so much that um, there's a rejection of technology, but what we should be doing is trying to find an expression through technology. And what what we need to realise is. Well, that sounds a bit like uh, didactic, but I think what's going on is that technology is something which humans do, and it's what separates us from the animal kingdom. I've kind of lost my way for some reason. Okay. Um, so uh, I captured this off YouTube, a video, and um, this Peter mentioned this earlier. This is the Uncanny Valley. So this is, this is, I think, what happens when we don't put technology in the right context or when we don't really question what's going on with technology. And importantly, it's, I think what's missing is all of, that, you know, all of that stuff about humanity. I think this is a product of laboratories and scientists, and their, their motivations are, are good, good-intentioned. But it looks really alien to us. It looks really shocking and disturbing. So for me, I think what it's about is, is actually about becoming comfortable with technology. Um, it's about critiquing technology and its applications. I think it's asking how can technology reflect our humanity? What can it teach us about ourselves? I think another important question is how can it advance our creativity? So on this slide, I just wanted to take some snippets of the sort of things I would read. And it actually takes me a really long time to sort of digest math like that and work out what, what's going on. Um, but there is something really interesting about the way that there is a pursuit in, in science to actually model some of these creative activities. So this math and this diagram is describing, it's, it's modeling a brush and how a brush moves on paper and how that could be used to produce calligraphy. And some people would say that this sort of devalues art or somehow makes art less valuable. But in my mind, when I look at things like this, I just see how badly it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. And for me, it just increases my respect. And I, I'm just more amazed at our ability to interact with materials and with tools and the sort of intuitive knowledge we have about those things. So obviously when it's like this, it appears very inaccessible. So that's something I'm interested in too. How can we make this sort of technology accessible? 
So it might have been when people were grinding paint up, that was quite inaccessible for most people. They didn't have the chemistry, the knowledge in chemistry to sort of understand how to mix their own pigments. But nowadays you just go to a shop and you look for the label and you buy you know, the colour you want. And so that's where technology can be useful in actually fulfilling creativity. And I think for me the analogy is a bit like with poetry where you might use meter, which is a rule set, but then you can creatively break that rule set. And a lot of creativity emerges out of some kind of systemization or categorization or some kind of foundation. Okay, so this is um, just a short animation of a 3D printer printing uh, something like that hairy pot. Um, so hopefully this sort of illustrates to you some of the stuff I've been talking about. So I've got some examples at the front here, but ordinarily a 3D printer works in a very systematic way. Um, it moves usually at a constant speed and that's as fast as, as possible. It deposits the same amount of material, almost like Lego blocks, because that's the easiest way to program a machine and control it. Whereas when we look at this example, we can see that the machine sort of slows down, speeds up, goes off, off piste completely and sort of into free air. And I think what's going on here is like quite a questioning about what's the intention of technology and what are the assumptions? So technology has been developed by somebody with some kind of intention and often technology is developed for commercial purposes and so it's made very lean and very efficient. But by looking at things differently and by taking a different sort of lens to look at things, we can just sort of question the fundamental way technology actually works. And I think when we do that, we then start to imbue some of our humanity, some of our innate curiosity. So this slide is a painting um, produced by a machine. Um, the objective is not to fool you. That's not what I'm interested in either. Um, but what it does do, or what it has done for me, is just illustrate how exceptionally difficult it is to get a machine to do something like painting. So often we think that we, we're super advanced. You know, we're completely ahead of the natural world and the animal kingdom and all this other stuff. And maybe that we've quite kind of finished our journey, but I just don't think that's true at all. And even though the news is saturated with the idea that AI is just around the corner and we're all doomed, I think we've got a long way to go because I still can't get a machine to work sensitively with materials. And I know it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm the genius who's going to solve that problem, but by engaging with this activity, it becomes really apparent at how difficult doing anything in the real world and with any kind of human compassion or sensitivity, like that is just immensely difficult. Um, this is another image of some of the work I've been doing. So this one is about um, handwriting. And for me, this, is, this sort of links up to the idea of gesture and movement. And what's interesting about this work is that um, in cognitive science, they can do brain scans and see what activity is going on. And actually, if you present people with handwriting, then the parts of the brain which light up and fire is their motor cortex, so the part of the brain associated to movement. And so when we look at things like handwriting, we're actually able to read out some of the uh, underlying action that was taken by the person who initially created the work. Okay. So when it comes to like what is the intersection of art and technology, for me, I think it's, it's about continuing the story of humanity. I really think that technology is humanity. But what's important is to sort of take that technology and put it in the context of the humanities. So I think, you know, that sounds really loopy and rep rep repetitive, but I think there's something really valuable in actually looking at technology, the technology we're developing, and that sort of natural tendency to develop technology, and then actually to sort of look at it again and question it, and look for that route in which we can express something about ourselves or the world we're experiencing. 
Um, I think a really important part of this and, and a part of all of that work is actually not having a destination and actually being on a journey. And I think if you're on that journey and you haven't finished your story and we haven't sort of created AI and haven't had all those sort of concluding events, then we're actually free to sort of find new things and explore new ways of doing things and sort of get rid of those assumptions. Okay, I'm done. Thanks. Such a sticky mouth when I'm talking. Are we on? Has anyone got any questions? With the Sumi picture of the goldfish, what kind of techniques are you using for? Because I'm assuming you're using similar techniques for the for the handwriting record, like replication and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering. Just broadly. Yeah, just broadly. Yeah. Um, so that uh, there's quite a few different components. Um, one of them is sort of uh, image processing techniques. So they might be used in machine vision. Um, uh, they'll be used to the same sort of techniques you'd use to recognize number plates, for example. And then uh, a sort of breakdown of that would be you'd take an image and then you'd apply some filters. So Sobel filters are able to sort of pick up lines, so consistent sort of lines of pixels and images. So I might run that twice, once looking for vertical lines and once looking for horizontal lines, twice for second time for horizontal lines. And then between the two of those, I can create a vector. I don't know, this is, I, you know, I could have spent this whole presentation talking about algorithms. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah, between, if you see those as an X and Y coordinate, then you can get a vector, which is a direction and a magnitude. And you, then it's like a pathfinding algorithm to stitch up all of those dots and directions. Um, and then what's interesting about handwriting is it's easy to define a path, but it's really difficult to give it that human characteristic. So with a handwriting model, you're looking at changes of velocity, so the way we might sort of uh, just quickly uh, sort of slip through a, a stroke on like the end of a what letter is that a C or something um, and then you sort of apply that on top yeah. um, and that Sumi E stuff was all about modeling brushes and I've not actually implemented any of that yet so yeah, yeah. but there's, there's loads um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah hello Hello. Um, you mentioned that at the Centre for Fine Print Research you um, work in a very interdisciplinary way. Uh -huh. Could you talk a bit more about that in terms of who you work with and how and what you have found to be some of the main challenges? Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to mutual respect, really, and being prepared to listen to, to others. Uh, I mean, in the group, we've got... You know, we've got um, people from sort of fine art printmaking backgrounds, we've got um, designers, we've got materials technologists, um, robotics specialists, so we've got a kind of a range of different backgrounds and I think it just comes down to kind of recognising that to do the type of research that we do, it requires those different perspectives and so 
providing you get a good team together and you've got people who can pull together and contribute and kind of respect each other's contributions, then it, it tends to work. I mean, we don't, we don't have any kind of formula for working as a team or any kind of rigid sort of methodology for making that happen. It just happens because we, we happen to get on and enjoy working together. And again, I think, I think we're oft, we, we do enjoy collaborating with people outside of that circle. And we, we, we get inquiries all the time from, from companies and from, you know, whether that's, you know, the 3D printing industry or medical technology companies. Um, so we were, in, we're in dialogue at the moment with a prosthetics company who, who, who contacted us completely out of the blue and said that they'd seen our, our work in 3D printing and wanted to look at how that could be applied in their industry. So, you know, we just, we, we, we kind of rely on that, having that visibility as well. Um, and we go to a lot of conferences that are, again, are interdisciplinary con conferences. So it's not just a, a conference on printmaking, but it might be a com conference on print technology that encompasses a whole range of different disciplines. I think, we, I think technologists enjoy working with us because we are, you know, we, we're kind of, we can often break their rules or do things in perhaps a different way than, than you know, in the, in the way that, that that kind of Paul's kind of hijacked a 3D printer and got it to do things that a 3D printer wouldn't normally do. That's, you know, that's very much how, you know, that very much, that's, that's Paul's individual creativity. But that kind of approach happens quite a lot in our group. You know, Dave took a, a 3D printer that normally prints in plaster and reverse engineered the, the, the process for how the plaster printing works and then generated a completely new ceramic material that worked in that machine. So again, it's kind of about being prepared to hack and break the rules. Yeah. I think um, my addition would be that, in my experience, the difficulty of interdisciplinary working is language, assumptions, and culture. Um, so when I was in the robotics lab, it was very, very, very quiet. Like everyone concentrated. And if you're a programmer, sometimes you need to sort of construct the logical problem in your mind, and it becomes this colossal, unwieldy thing. And it's a problem then if somebody comes over and says, hey, want to go get coffee? And it's like, a, it's like a, a nice thing to ask, but a really difficult thing to handle if, if that's your background. Um, and also, I think if it's at that intersection of, of disciplines when a lot of miscommunication haps, happens. So, um, I mean, that happens in, in all kinds of ways. So I think what I'm trying to say is the way we get it to work is just almost by having... It is a, it is a culture, isn't it, in the research group of of respect, like Peter says, but also just a way of sort of making sure we're all on the same page and sort of having that ability to sort of see something through someone else's eyes, like, oh, what might this person actually be asking? Um, and being able to translate what, what your intention is through their language as well. talk a bit more about the relationship between materials and making because obviously there's there's the machine but there is also the the material and I wonder yeah. if you could talk a bit more about that both of you yeah do you want to go first okay. all right so um uh, this is something I'm really interested in um my background in robotics was very much about mobile robots and embodied intelligence and you can think of that as driverless cars and the difficulty then is getting them to make 
decisions when things are changing really fast and there's, and there's dire consequences. The funny thing is I think that's not so different to doing paintings. <laughs> uh, so materials are really complex substances um, and if you get it wrong then they're kind of stuck, they're stuck on the page. Um, but I think it's also interesting about if you're a driverless car and you need to observe the world. I think, you know, in a way, if we're going to get a robot to make paintings, then it also needs to be able to observe the world and understand its medium. And that could be the substrate like paper, it could be inks or paints. Um, and then there's that, that aspect I've already mentioned about gesture and the importance of gesture. And all those things come together and end up sort of represented in materials. So I'm really keen to sort of find ways to get machines to be sensitive to materials and sympathetic to materials and to get machines to kind of understand what they're doing. And that might be an expert system where I imbue it with my, my knowledge, or it could be uh, some kind of machine learning. But what I think is interesting is if we can get machines to react um, intelligently and autonomously to materials on their own and where that might lead creative expression. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a slightly different answer to that in that I guess something that I always used to bang on about was if you want to be a good designer, then you've got to be able to draw by hand and you've got to be able to go into the workshops and hack material and make things. So if you are... So, yeah, if, if I used to have this idea that, uh, and I still have this idea, but not quite so strongly, that if you want to be a good designer, you've got to be able to draw by hand, you've got to be able to render, you've got to be able to do perspective, you've got to be able to go in the workshops, play with materials, make really crude basic models quickly. If, you, if you're designing a chair, then it's no good just making a scale model, you've got to make a full-size one. Someone's got to sit on it, somebody's got to stand on it, it needs to be strong enough, the materials need to be right, all that kind of stuff. And I was very anti this idea of computer-aided design and I used to say, well, you know, how, how can you, you know, you design something on the computer in CAD and then you go through that whole process and then you, you kind of 3D print it and it's wrong because it doesn't actually, it's only when it's 3D printed that you actually see what it's really like and then you discover a hundred things that you would do differently. But actually, I think that those two kind of approaches go together. And it's not like, it's not like the 3D printing replaces the playing with materials in the workshop. And it's not like the drawing in CAD replaces the drawing by hand or drawing with magic markers or whatever. It's kind of, it's kind of about bringing those two together. So my thinking now is more around integration rather than setting up a conflict between people that do stuff with their hands and people that do stuff with a mouse. I think it's kind of it's those those things getting those things to work together. That's where th now that seems to be where all the really interesting stuff is happening. But again, like that idea of the ghost in the machine, all these all these three D printing processes are, are haunted by the fact that actually you still need to understand materials and you still need to be able to understand things like structure and how thick a wall needs to be in order for something to stand up and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a whole kind of mishmash of different things. I think. Sorry, that was probably quite an incoherent answer but no, that was good and I, I think to, yeah. to add to that cause yeah. that's, I think that's just so interesting there's um, a book called Abstracting Craft which is all about can we have a digital craftsperson and that book talks about exactly what Peter's talking about where if we if we put in like a layer of CAD then what actually happens is the person has to just take more steps to go back to their material 
It's that idea that you, know, you, you, you might understand materials and, and make some choices based on those materials. You then design in CAD and print it and discover that those material choices were wrong. And so actually, if we, if we sort of make the assumption that a craftsperson becomes very intimate with their materials and understands how to use those materials, then we could say a digital craftsperson is doing the same thing and they just have this extra layer which they have to navigate through. I mean, I would, I would say in the last five years, I, I never draw by hand and I never make models by hand anymore. And yet that, was used, that used to be the thing that I used to bang on about all the time <laughs> and really annoy people about. But actually, I, you know, it's ages since I've taken out a pencil and paper and done a sketch. Now, Rhino is my, is my sketchbook now. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. That's just, a, just, just an observation of how things, yeah. you know, within my, within my own practice, that's how things have changed, really. Hi. About uh, 30 years ago, a guy came here to the Arnold Fenia, a guy called Harold Cohen, and he had a piece of software called Aaron, mm -hmm. and he, it was written in C++ or C, and it was on a very large Unix machine, and he had a floor plotter. So uh, my question to you, and um, my view, perhaps, is the interface or intersection between art and technology may be computer programming. So I just wonder if you could speak to that at all. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't quite uh, get the crux of the question, but um, I could just relate to you some of my experiences uh, being in that place, because my, my strength is definitely programming. Um, and the difficulty I've had is that it's a very sort of obscured process and it can, it's a sort of inner machine and so it's very difficult to recognize. And quite often um, when I've collaborated with artists, unfortunately artists have sort of taken complete ownership of the work and then disseminated it as their own and I've received no recognition. I think that's my fault for not being assertive in the beginning. And actually um, I think really that just indicates how uh, quite a lot of digital technology is just kind of taken for granted. And a part of what I was trying to say in, in my talk, actually, was that uh, we should reframe technology, I think, not just as a tool, but as a medium for creative expression. Um, and that includes something like programming. So often people will ask me, um, am I trying to replace a, 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 a painter, let's say? And my answer is definitely no. Um, I'm trying to think of another example. But it's, it's quite common that people don't associate creativity with technology. Um, there's an agenda at the moment to integrate you know, STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and maths. And, and the next that new thing is to integrate it with art, and so it's becoming STEAM. But again, I think it's that thing about making distinctions in the first place. And actually, creativity is, if you're a scientist, it's in constructing your hypothesis and your experiment. If it's an engineer, it's in it, the use of materials and, you know, uh, playing with the laws of physics and things, I suppose. But anyway, what I'm getting at is, I hope this answers your question, that I think there's inherent... Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't really a question. I'm just uh, putting it out there. Just, just as a footnote, 30-odd years ago, I used to teach down at what was then Bristol Polytechnic, and I was teaching Fortran to art students. Right. Art yeah. stroke design students. Oh, well, you'll be pleased to hear that. We've, um, there's been a bit of a revival, and there's, there's now a tech lab at Bower Ashton, and we're teaching... Um, you know, budding artists how to program and how to work with, with technology, and it's, it's good. <laughs> Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I was just 
going to ask about the challenge of sustainability in relation to 3D printing and the actual plastics and so forth. And where do you see that discussion at the moment within the profession and where do you sort of see it going? Or are we slightly in, in, in relation to the uh, proliferation of uh, fab labs in a sense, just repeating Yoda heads kind of everywhere and where do you sort of see that kind of yeah. going? I think that's a really, really great question with really serious implications and not with an easy answer. Um, I read a science fiction book recently and there was a line which just really made me laugh and it said something like that age-old like 21st century problem of, of logistics. And in this sci-fi novel they just made stuff when they needed it and where they needed it. Um, so at the moment, of course, we ship almost everything all the way around the world just to get it. So on the one hand, technologies like 3D printing might allow us to create sort of more local manufacturing, but I think you're quite right to question the use of plastics. So I know that, that these plastic objects are made with a cornstarch and they're labelled as biodegradable, but it would take hundreds of years for them to biodegrade. Um, I think there's something interesting, though, in, in the technology which underlies it, which is the idea of, of you know, digital automated fabrication. Um, and at, at the research group, we're very much interested in using as many different materials as possible and opening up those avenues. Got anything to add? I think it's something that people talk about a lot, and some people say, oh, 3D printing is green because you only use the material that, you know, you don't need a mold, you just, you just use the material that's, that's, that's contained within the object that you're making. Um, but actually, I think that's a bit of a fallacy, really, because obviously there's a machine, and if everyone had one of these machines, that would be a lot of machines that we don't, ha we don't have at the moment. And also, there's all different kinds of 3D printing and all different kinds of materials. So some of the, some of the 3D printers are, yes, you can use a biomaterial. You can extrude a filament of, of a, a bioplastic that's been grown in a field and will decompose um, without leaving a footprint. But then there are other 3D printers that use horrible chem chemicals, um, you know, photo-curing resins and things that contain all kinds of nasties that you would, you know, which are really unpleasant if you get them on the, your hands, let alone if they were spilled in the environment. So, and I think also nobody's really done a proper audit on 3D printing. I, I've, I've certainly never seen one. I mean, I've seen sort of piecemeal bits of research where they've chosen a particular 3D printing process and they've looked at the amount of energy that's used compared to the amount of energy that's used in injection molding. And I think 3D printing wasn't as good as injection molding in terms of, you know, being energy efficient. Because obviously, you, you know, an injection molding tool, you're pumping out stuff every second. So it's, it's, it's designed to be efficient. Otherwise, the company doing the injection molding wouldn't be able to afford to do it. So uh, I really don't know what the answer is. I mean, we've got, PH, we've got potential PhD students, you know, who hopefully, if they get the funding, will be starting to look at some of these issues. Yeah. But it's, it's just massive. It's just, it's just massive. I mean, you're right, Yoda heads everywhere. You know, what, what, what are they for? You know, it's, it's kind of... That's a really interesting way to turn it around, though, which is like, um, is, it is just a technology, it's just a tool in that case. And what the problem is, is consumer habits um, or, or the way we use that technology. And again, I think in that arts and technology context and trying to look at it through a lens of humanity, we might ask instead, like, how we as artists or as technologists can actually affect behavior in some way. And actually, you know, I don't think 3D printers are fundamentally bad, we just need to be using them creatively to solve the real problems.
Um, in developing these techniques to, I guess, create art and beautiful objects with technology, is there a danger of then, you know, the, the age of the, the question everyone asks, robots replacing humans? Mm -hmm. So is there a danger in devaluing the human-made craft if you can obviously spend a lot of time developing something that looks really beautiful and almost human crafted ultimately will that lead to people want you know you can mass produce it and then it'll be cheaper and then people won't want to buy you know in the same way that you know manufacturing affected yeah i'm really interested in that in that area actually like what what makes something authentic how do we, how do we recognize something as, as made by a person um that that question is you know, really hot at the moment. Are robots going to take all our jobs? So it's, it's not just about taking the, the jobs of artists, in fact. Um, there's like a, a really old book called Operation Manual for Spaceship Earth, I think. It gets a bit weird towards the end. But um, in that, uh, it's Buckminster Fuller, and he says that, in his opinion, what technology does is sort of integrates um, knowledge and specialism, and particularly towards repetitive tasks. And what humans are good at is actually looking at sort of the broad picture and the patterns and looking for sort of creative solutions to problems. And if we sort of continue that idea, that narrative, then what really we, we could be using robotics for is to sort of do those repetitive specialized tasks. And, you know, indeed that's what computers are good at. They number crunch, basically. And what that should do is free us up then to be much more creative. Um, so, I mean, in the bigger picture, there's lots of people doing really crap jobs. And, like, is that fair? You know, is that right? Um, could robots be doing those jobs? And of course, the bigger question is, how do we actually uh, create value in creative endeavor? And I think that's a really pressing question in general for the creative industries at the moment, um, regardless of, of robots. Um, again, it's all about, in my opinion, about changing consumer habits. And I think the way to do that is, is actually through the arts and through the creative industries. And so those things need to be much, much higher valued. But I think economically, we need to figure out I think it's kind of inevitable that automation is coming, so we do need to figure out like what are all these people going to be doing. Uh, again, it's controversial, but in my opinion, there's a lot of wealth which just goes up to the top. So a big problem about robots and automation is who's in control? Like, who's in control of the means of production? Um, if it's just a few, then we're all in trouble. Um, yeah, but I think there's some discussion about that idea of the universal uh, income, and that's really interesting. I mean, maybe if people just felt like they had a bit more dignity and self-respect, then they would engage, you know, in, in the, not big society, I hate that Tory slogan, but, you know, in the helping out everyone else, like engaging, contributing, yeah. I've not got anything to add on that. It's, um, yeah. I mean, maybe uh, about the arts thing, I guess it's kind of like I was, I was answering to that gentleman earlier that um, there's a huge amount of creativity in working with technology, and uh, I, I don't think we would ever replace uh, people, like you know, person painters. Uh, they're just going. They're always going to have their own intrinsic value. Uh, I don't think it's a problem. Um, it, from your experience, um, and from this talk, it seems that it, the intersection of art and technology is driven by technologists becoming more creative. Do you think there's room for it to be the other way around for artists to, you know, for pure fine artists without any sort of handle on digital fabrication or programming to enter the sphere of 
what you're doing and input some meaning, some sort of meaning to it that isn't already there? Do you think there's something that sort of cross fertilisation in the other direction? Yeah, absolutely. And um, if if that's how it came across that I thought only only technologists could become artists in art and technology, then that, that's not at all what I, I meant to say. Um, in fact, I think what it, what needs to happen is it needs to be lots of people working together because, like I said, we are actually in an era of, of specialism and it is really difficult to do everything. Um, and so, actually, you know, I would really value the contribution of a fine artist as much as I would a technologist and I try to sort of view their creativity equally and it would be more about how do we sort of facilitate that collaboration and how do we make that work and how do we make that interesting. I think the idea of the sort of artist genius and that, that sort of lone, lone wolf who just has that moment of inspiration is actually a bit sort of old hat. Um, yeah, I, the, you know, it's that question, where's the hand of the artist, which is interesting as well, and it's like a can of worms, but definitely, a, yeah, okay, I'm kind of ranting off in a different direction, but yeah. yeah. Well, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think when when I was discuss or I didn't say it, but when I discuss art and technology, I don't necessarily mean new technology. It can be old technology. What I think fundamentally it is about is our relationship with technology. It's the way we view technology. So quite often we'll say something like, "Technology is destroying our natural environment." Um, what else? I'm trying to think of some examples. But there's there's all these ways in which we can talk quite divisively about you know categorize and cut these things up. Um, I think like, you know, if, if you've pulled the ring pull off a can and it didn't open, then you're going to get some kind of like a spoon and just jimmy it open. And, and that's like a creative act with technology. And in a similar way, I think what I would really advocate is that now more than ever, we need artists and people in the arts and humanities to be engaging with technology at whatever level they can. And we need to be sort of asking questions about our relationship to technology, what we're doing with that technology, where we're headed with that technology. I think technology is moving very quickly, and actually the, the boundaries between humanity, technology, and nature, I suppose, are actually like, significantly blurring. What does it mean if we can create our own synthetic biological organisms? We should have that conversation, you know? So um, I don't think if you're a fine artist, you should feel excluded. I think now more than ever, you should be just going out there and doing something with technology in any way you think is appropriate. I, I hope that answers. I don't know. We can chat about it. Yeah. Hello. Um, you talked about doing for the sake of knowing as being the sort of ethos of your center. And it seemed like from your examples that's um, attracted the interest of industry. So I was wondering if um, this interest, interest from industry is leading to sort of application-led projects. And do you see those projects as sort of um, threatening the ethos of your center? I don't see them as threatening, no. I mean, obviously things need to be kept in balance. Um, but we are, I mean, we, as I'm sure you, you know, you, you realize this, 
There's, there seems to be less and less money around these days mm -hmm. for doing research in the visual arts. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we have to get an income from somewhere. And if, if doing a project with an industry partner means that we get some more funding, which can then you know, pay for another member of staff or, or pay for some more equipment or some, you know, to upgrade the equipment. Because obviously this, this kind of technology is moving so quickly that you know, you know, some of our equipment is 10 years old. Um, you know, it still works, but obviously we, you know, that, that's a huge expense there. So I think doing a project with an industry is, is, is a way of you know, keeping the centre afloat. And it adds another, I think it adds another string to our bow, but you know, we've still got, you know, we're still the same team, we're still, um, I mean, I think also, you know, quite a few, us, quite a few of us within the centre have worked in industry as well, so we're not, we're not just people who've kind of had an academic career where we've, you know, we've gone from a BA to an MA to a PhD and then a research post, you know, we, like Paul's involved with a local, um, how would you describe Rusty Squid? Is yeah, it's, it's a robotics art and design studio. Yeah. yeah. So I've worked in industry. I've got products in mass production still from when I was a, a practicing designer. Dave Houston's worked in the ceramics industry, all, you know, for most of his career, and has run pottery factories. So we've we all come. We're not we're not kind of, you know, we're attached to industry anyway. So for us, that's nothing, that's nothing new or alien to to what happens. It's just part of who we are. And the fact that we can explore that creatively within the centre, whether we're making, you know, components for a water treatment system or, you know, a new type of ceramic artwork, it's it's still really fascinating and interesting, and it's still pushing the technology to its limits. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, I think that's everyone. It looks like everyone's satisfied, but you're welcome to come down and have a chat if you like. Okay, thank you very much.